is Chichester Cinephile. The podcast for Chichester Cinema at New Park in Chichester, West Sussex. Find us at chichestercinema.org. Hello, this is the Chichester Cinephile podcast. With the cinema closed, we have no programme to preview for you, but what we do have is a cine circle discussion, plus some streaming recommendations to while away the long winter evenings. Then we have two features this month. Patrick is marking this month's centenary of the birth of novelist Patricia Highsmith by looking at her creation Ripley, as in the talented Mr Ripley. Finally, I have a feature about the use of a specific musical instrument in film. More about that later. If you're new to the podcast, let me explain about the Cine Circle. Before Covid, a group of us used to meet up monthly in the Hornet Alehouse in Chichester to discuss what we'd seen recently. For the lockdown Cine Circle, it's just the three of us, and we choose three films from all time that we would like to talk about. And this month we'll be discussing Black Narcissus, 1947, Wild Rose, 2018, and Subway from 1985. If you want to watch these films before listening to our discussions, we recommend www.justwatch.com to find out where you can do that. So, who are we? Hello, I'm Cara Godsmark. I am Patrick Harger, Deputy Education Officer at the Cinema. And I'm Sandy, and I'm just a regular at the cinema. So, after this, it's the Cine Circle. Play it once, Sam. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. So now it's time for the mini Cine Circle, and the first film for discussion is to be introduced by Patrick. Black Narcissus is a film by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, released in 1947. At the peak of their success, it was immediately following A Matter of Life and Death and preceding The Red Shoes. It's recently been remade as a three-part series co-produced by the BBC and American company FX. It's set in a newly established Himalayan nunnery, formerly a brothel, and stars Deborah Carr as the young sister superior. Here meeting the British agent of the ruler of the local state, played by David Farrer. I'm the general's agent. He welcomes you to Mopo. Understood you wanted to see me. We want to talk to you on business. I didn't suppose you want to talk to me on anything else. Sorry, perhaps that wasn't fair. Mr. Dean, you know that General Toda Rai has given us this house for a new foundation of our order. We very much appreciate it. It's very generous of him. Yes. You'd like the general, sister. He also is a superior being. Really? I don't know why you are being so rude to me, Mr. Dean. I have to talk business with you whether I like it or not. Well, talk it then and don't teach it me. The film continues to enjoy high critical esteem, regularly featuring on lists of best British films of all time, but it was vilified at the time both by the author of the novel on which it's based, Rumour Gordon, and by the Catholic Legion of Decency. So which side are you on, Carol? Which side am I on? It just goes to show how bonkers the whole idea was, because the populace was managing perfectly well without nuns, 
The story happened in 1947, just during partition, and it was really neither here nor there. What did I think of Black Narcissus? Well, definitely far better than the three-part series. I thought the colour was really quite extraordinary. Patrick, I'm sure you can tell me how they managed to film it in such vivid colours. And uh, it was different because they were on the set wherever it was filmed. But it was Pinewood. on Pinewood, right, completely different to uh, the, the three part. Although one shouldn't really compare and contrast to that extent. But I found that the tension and the energy was so, so superior. And it was very beautiful to look at. So had you seen it before, Sandy? I thought I had, but I think I've only ever seen clips. So it's the first time I've seen it all the way through. I was interested, Carol mentioned the vivid colours. I thought they, they were vivid, but also very muted. It was a very soft palette. And yet it was striking. And I was absolutely amazed. And I was trying to work out, which you shouldn't do, I know, when you're watching a film. But I was trying to work out how they made it look as though it was actually filmed there. I mean, you knew it wasn't. And you could see the joins at times. But I totally believed they were up a mountain. It was quite extraordinary. Absolutely, yeah. Jack Cardiff was the cinematographer, I think we we ought to say. Ah. He was a cinematographer. Alfred Younger was the production designer. It's one of my favourite films of all time, I have to say. And when I saw that the TV series was on, I thought, here's an opportunity for us to look at the original. Like you, Carol, I did have a look at the TV series. I only got as far as the first episode because I'm afraid it didn't come anywhere near the film for me. I just think it's extraordinary. And the direction by Powell and Pressburger, as you say, the way they kind of create that world without having left Pinewood Studios is quite extraordinary. Going back to the look of it, what struck me was that we don't get nowadays nearly as much, and maybe it's because in colour it's different, but the use of shadows. There was um, light coming through windows and you could see the window frames um, shadowed across the room and things. And it's it's a big trope from black and white uh, film noir. But used in colour, I thought it was almost majestic in the way it set the scene all the time. And you don't get that in modern films in the same way. Maybe not so much. Perhaps, you know, there, there are still some very visually impressive modern... I, mean, I think like Ter- Terence Malick's films maybe as well. Yeah, the, maybe, the, the, maybe. The, but yeah, it, it is... It was, I think, groundbreaking at the time because it's obviously it was made only, what, just, just over 10 years after the first full-length Technicolor film, so it was still the very early years of Technicolor. But yeah, I think it has rarely been bettered. I think performances as well ought to be mentioned because it, it's not just all about the cinematography. I mean, Deborah Carl, she was young. She, she was only in her mid-twenties or whatever when she, she did that. And she was absolutely terrific, I thought, as the sister superior. She was kind of passionate but conflicted. And, and it's also actually the 100th anniversary of her birth this year as well. So I'm hoping if we can to do some kind of look back at her career at the cinema later on this year. And I thought David Farrow was great as the British agent and Kathleen Byron as Sister Ruth, one tormented by her desires. Very, very good performance as well. Just one other thing is that the few exteriors they did out of the studio, some of them were actually shot at Lennon's Lee Gardens near Horsham. Next up with the film is Carol. It's Wild Rose, which some of you might have seen at the cinema. Who's ever heard of a country singer from Glasgow? So says Rose Lynn, played by the miraculous Jessie Buckley, of herself despairingly in Wild Rose, a unique and gritty spin on the rising star genre. 
Singer-actor Buckley, a former BBC talent show competitor who can belt them out to rival Lady Gaga, plays a very fireish Scottish ex-con and single mother of two small children. She's got a deep and abiding love of American country music, not country and western, as she frequently corrects fellow Scots, and aims to be the next Dolly Parton as her fellow inmates yell upon her release. I should have been born in America, insists Rose Lynn, as she cuts an unruly swathe through pubs clubs and prison bars, reminding us that Johnny Cash was a convicted criminal. But beyond such bravado, it's the power of music to pierce the heart that is the focus of this uplifting, bittersweet film. Julie Walters co-stars as Rose's frustrated mother, Marion, who's trying to temper her daughter's grand old Opry aspirations with the realities of parenting. When Rose takes a job as a maid for a wealthy family, her boss, Sophie Okonedo, gradually becomes a mentor of sorts while being kept in the dark about Rose having kids. And here's a clip of Sophie Okonedo with Rose Lynn. I'm actually trying to get to Nashville, you know. Oh. I'm, I'm needing to raise a couple of grand so I can get flights and hotel and... I can't drive, so I'm needing a driver as well. And it wouldn't it be more than two or three, definitely less than five. Oh, Rosalind, I, I'm sorry, I can't just give you money. That's what you're suggesting, which I'm sure it wasn't. No, it was. I can't do that. I don't know. I'm not being funny, but I just kind of thought with all the wee smelly candles burning everywhere and bottled water and all that, you know, you wouldn't miss it. I'll be old and grey before I save the money, whereas you, and you, you could just drink out of the tap. So, Patrick, what did you think of it? Hmm. <laughs> Um, I had a lot of problems with this film, I'm afraid. If I start with the central character, I don't have to like the central character in a film. Obviously not. There are plenty of memorable films where the central character is obnoxious, but I I kind of felt that we were very much intended to sympathise with the character Rose Lynn, and that's something I found very hard to do. I mean, I'm not an expert in psychiatry, but she seemed to be suffering from some kind of antisocial personality disorder. She's an extremely unpleasant person, I think. She's utterly selfish, mendacious, reckless, attention-seeking, subject to violent rages, blames everyone but herself for her problems. And it would be very difficult to feel sympathy for her, even if she was if she had a huge talent. But I, I didn't think she was that good, to be honest. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on psychiatry nor on country music, but her talent seemed quite modest to me. And she, she's not a Emily Harris or a Loretta Lynn. And I, I just thought the film as a whole was poorly structured, contrived, cliched and revoltingly sentimental. Did you not think the songs were good? I don't know about the songs, but I just thought as her, her performance, I thought, was, yeah, she was fine. She could sing. Yeah, that's not the major problem. Everyone was kind of reduced to tears by her performances. I thought she was a show-off, basically, an attention seeker. And as I say, she lacked the kind of sincerity, as I say, of, uh, of an Amy Lou Harris or a, um, a Loretta I Lynn. think that was and, part uh, of the uh, point, I, though. Did, did you not think that she's found herself a bit um, and reigned back well, on all those this, problems as yeah. the film went on? She has this kind of epiphany, doesn't which I found completely unconvincing. I, you see, I, th- I thought the film was full of implausible plot twists where suddenly everything changed. I went along with it. Carol, what did you think? I absolutely love this film. Well, I like um, 
country music and I thought that she did a fantastic job and the only problem I have with the film is parachuting Julie Walters in to sell it to the Americans or whatever. Anyone could have played that part and as much as I adore Julie Walters I don't think that she belonged in this film. I thought Jessie Buckley was superb. I saw it at the cinema when it came out and I teared up again at all the bits I think you should tear up at. I, I just really went with her and I loved the music. I was with her all the way even though I disliked her to start with it's not just about the music it's about someone pursuing their pretty um, unachievable dreams and coming out of jail and dealing with modern life I thought it had it dealt with that very well if I'd been connected with her in any way, I would have somehow scraped the money up to uh, get her to go to Nashville just on the condition that she'd never return. Well, for those oh, for those oh. of you who like the music, here's a little bit of Jessie Buckley as Rose Lynn rehearsing her band. Well, I never did call and I never did told the line. I know, Carl, this is it's way too slow. Well, I never did crawl and I never did told the line No man is master of me, I ain't that kind I just put on my traveling shoes If you want to win, just can't lose the time Or stay behind Well, I was born to run The third film we're going to discuss is Subway from 1985. French director Luc Besson is probably best known for directing Léon and The Fifth Element, but an early film was Subway, mostly set behind the scenes in the Paris metro. There are gangsters chasing Fred, played by Christophe Lambert, who is in love with and blackmailing the wife of a crime boss, Isabella Gianni. Bungling transport cops, a whole cast of underworld characters who live in the metro, it's all there. It starts with a car chase and a nod to the French connection, while there are also small references to any film with an underground scene, like The Third Man, and even a bit of Star Wars as Fred brandishes a fluorescent light bulb as a torch. There are traces of a western, and the dialogue sometimes crackles with some film noir lines. Here's a bit of the chase at the start of the film, with Fred unable to engage with his chasers until he finds the right cassette tape, not unlike Baby Driver many years later. Shoot me. So, Carol, had you seen Subway before? I had not even seen it, but I had never heard of it. I'm very glad that I have seen it. I just absolutely love this film. And uh, Luc Besson, it would appear, had been influenced by Tarkovsky's Stalker because of the scenes in the dank, dark basement. And our hero, stroke villain, never knowing which tunnel to follow, where to go, but is lured on by his goal. I think it's, it was entertaining and funny. Uh, one scene where our victim heroine, played by Isabelle Adjani, points a gun at our character's head. And when he doesn't react, she says, don't you go to the cinema? Just a glorious moment. And I just really enjoyed the whole thing. Patrick. 
Yeah, in terms of like the design, I was interesting because there's a little link with our Christmas podcast. I don't know if you noticed that although some of it was actually filmed in the Metro, uh, a lot of it was sets and uh, the sets were actually designed by Alexandre Trauner and he won a, a César for it. And uh, 25 years previously, he got the Academy Award for the apartment. I thought that was by far the most impressive aspect of the film. I'm afraid I wasn't particularly engaged by the rest of it after the manic opening. Once we got underground, I don't know, it seemed to me a bit like a, a sort of visual style of a music video from the early days of MTV extended to about an hour and a half. I, I thought the characters were slightly bizarre types with no kind of depth at all. The narrative was a little rambling and incoherent. And I'm afraid after about 20 minutes, I kind of glazed over and, and remained in that state for, for the rest of the film. Well, I saw it first in the 1980s. When I watched it again, I, I must say, I watched it this morning early. And even at 7.30 in the morning, I just watched the whole thing with a smile on my face. I thought it was absolutely tremendous. I like the style. I like the jokes. I like the little references to everything. No, you didn't care about the characters, but they're not the sort of characters you care about. The lugubrious transport police boss. There were little jokes, like they'd appear at the door with, with a whole load of gendarme behind him and he'd go... Let's split up. And they all went in different directions like a posse. And then immediately you cut to the gangsters coming down and they said, keep together. And those sorts of little jokes, which are not big jokes at all, but I just thought they were all the way through. And I see what you mean about the music video. It did have some of those qualities, but I thought it didn't overdo that. Because it's part of this kind of movement, which was known as cinéma du look, which was the sort of French term, which basically meant, I think, French and postmodern. And uh, I, I did get the fact that it was supposed to be very sort of jokey and self-referential and, and so on. I, I just found it a little bit tiresome after a while. I, I wanted to more of a kind of narrative. It was almost like it was moving from one little jokey episode to another. And uh, I didn't engage. The performances were OK. I mean, Isabel Ajani is, is certainly beautiful, but I thought, apart from her admirable ability to keep a straight face while sporting increasingly outre coiffure um, <laughs> I didn't really feel there was much to her character. I've often thought what goes on behind the scenes of the London Underground so the Paris Metro is exactly the same Carol have you ever been on a train and wondered how it all fits together and where the um, police have their offices and what goes on down those tunnels and round corners? Always always I've always wondered you know, those side doors that you're not allowed to enter where do they go it does take a little time to get into the whole thing and then when you embrace it you want to go down yet another tunnel and yet another tunnel and find out about the characters and there's so many things in this film which really work so well because they have slight little motifs of um, the police uh, chief saying get me a coffee you know and every time anyone appears with great news, you know, what they've done, etc. Get me a coffee. I found that very amusing. I'm sorry, not, not too many people might. But the ending is just absolutely glorious, which I will not spoil for you, but it is absolutely hilarious. And it's a fitting ending to a very, very bonkers film. Still to come on this month's podcast will be our streaming recommendations and a wide range of tastes and interests are taken care of. Some you will maybe not know and some will be reminders, no doubt. There's a music feature later on, but next will be Patrick's take on Patricia Highsmith and her best-known creation. Well, when I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, 
I'm better. The American novelist Patricia Highsmith, who was born in Texas 100 years ago this month, was the author of 22 novels and several collections of short stories. Her work was primarily located within the thriller genre, but like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler, her writing transcended its conventions. Perhaps her most memorable character was that of the psychopath Tom Ripley, who made his debut in her fourth novel, The Talented Mr Ripley, published in 1955, and who continued his murderous exploits in four more novels. The first three novels have spawned five films so far, each with a different actor playing Ripley, and a new TV series based on all five novels is currently in development in the USA. In The Talented Mr Ripley, a chance encounter with a wealthy American, Herbert Greenleaf, sends Tom Ripley on a journey to Italy to find Greenleaf's son, Dickie. Greenleaf Sr. funds the journey and employs Ripley on a mission to persuade his son to return to the family home in America, where his mother is terminally ill. Ripley befriends Dickie Greenleaf and, stricken with envy of his hedonistic lifestyle, murders him, takes on his identity and even forges his will so that he can continue to live off him after his death. That Delicate Lament was sung by Marie Laforet, the French chanteuse and actress, making her film debut as Marge in the very first Ripley film, René Clément's 1960 adaptation of the talented Mr Ripley, Plain Soleil, released internationally as Purple Noon. Alain Delon, the first screen Tom Ripley, is an authentic version of the Ripley of the book, charming, brazen and ruthless. Highsmith herself found the film very beautiful for the eye and interesting for the intellect. The sequences on the small boat as the tension builds between Ripley, Greenleaf and Marge are masterly and Clément makes tremendous use of the Italian locations, often filming on the fly and conveying effectively the atmosphere of a small Italian fishing port. In 1999, the book was adapted for the screen again by British director Anthony Minghella, this time keeping its original title. And a clutch of bright young stars were hired, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett, Jack Davenport and Matt Damon in the title role. Here is Damon as Ripley, having now taken on the identity of the friend he has murdered, Dickie Greenleaf, receiving an unexpected visit from Dickie's friend Freddie Miles, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman necessitating a quick reversal back to the character of Tom Ripley. But Freddie's suspicions are aroused. You know, in fact, the only thing that looks like Dickie is you. Hardly. Hmm. Is that, have you done something to your hair? Is there something you'd like to say, Freddie? What? Do you have something you'd like to say? I think I'm saying it. Something's going on. Either he's converted to Christianity or to something else. Well, I would suggest you ask Dickie that yourself. I'll tell us it's on Della Croce just off the Corso. Is it on Della Croce just off the Corso? 
You're, you're a quick study, aren't you? The last time you didn't know your ass from your elbow, now you're giving me directions. That's not fair. You probably do know your ass from your elbow. I'll see you. Hoffman is superb as Miles, openly despising Ripley and smelling rats everywhere. But Damon never quite conveys the cold-hearted evil of Ripley, certainly not as effective as Delon had done in Plain Soleil. Jude Law also perhaps overdid the obnoxiousness of Dickie Greenleaf. It is difficult to resist cheering when Ripley offs him by smashing his skull with an oar. The film was successful both commercially and critically, and if you like glamorous stars in picture postcard locations, it is an enjoyable thriller, but it lacks the intensity of Clément's earlier version. Between these two versions, Wim Wenders, one of the leading young directors of new German cinema, adapted the third Ripley novel, Ripley's Game, as The American Friend, released in 1977. Wenders fell out with Highsmith over his casting of maverick actor-director Dennis Hopper as Ripley. But while one can sympathise with her view that the Wenders-Hopper Ripley was not the Ripley of the books, the film itself is a glorious homage to film noir, displaying Wenders' painter's eye in his superb cityscapes of Hamburg, Paris and New York. The film really belongs to Bruno Gantz as Jonathan, the mild-mannered, terminally ill picture-framer, recruited as a hitman, who eliminates members of the Mafia in order to be able to leave his wife and child some money after his death. In this clip, Hopper, as Ripley, visits him in his workshop in the aftermath of his first successful hit. I like this room. It's got a good feel to it. Quiet and peaceful. It's like you. I envy you. Smell of paint and wood. Must be good to work here. And when you finish something, you can see what you've done. But it's not that easy. Not that safe and easy. What do you make? I make money. And I travel a lot. I'm bringing the Beatles back to Hamburg. Well, I don't believe you that. I it's am. no rumor. This is no rumor. Rumor. Vendors reworks the source material with such panache and style that it stands as one of the most successful of all film adaptations of a novel. And Highsmith subsequently changed her mind and endorsed his vision. In 2002, Ripley's Game was filmed under its original title by a veteran of Italian cinema, Liliana Cavani. It featured another audacious piece of casting. Tom Ripley was played by John Malkovich, older and physically dissimilar to the Ripley of the books. But no one does insouci on ruthlessness like Malkovich, and he quickly overcomes any doubts about his suitability. This time, Dougray Scott plays Jonathan, the picture-framer turned assassin. 
Having helped to dispatch three men in a trained toilet, he finds himself horrified by what he has done and suffers an emotional meltdown. Ripley tries to help him make sense of it all. I know that I should thank you because I wouldn't be alive now if you hadn't helped me, but I can't say it. I can't say thank you. I don't know anything about you. Who are you? I'm a creation. I'm a gifted improviser. I lack your conscience, and when I was young, that troubled me. It no longer does. I don't worry about being caught because I don't believe anyone is watching. The world is not a poorer place because those people are dead. It's not. It's one less car on the road. It's a little less noise and menace. You were brave today. You put some money away for your family. That's all. Ripley's game is a worthy version of Highsmith and very much captures the spirit of the book, which is more than can be said for Ripley Underground, directed by Bond veteran Roger Spottiswood, an adaptation of the second Ripley novel released in 2005. In the book, Ripley is attacked and buried alive, hence the title, and Fox tried to do the same to the film. Sadly for its participants, like Ripley, it resurfaced. A travesty, disfigured by some dreadful overacting, prehistoric sexism and a hopelessly miscast Barry Pepper as Ripley, this should be shunned at all costs. So who was the best Tom Ripley? Obviously not Barry Pepper, but all the other performances are worthy of consideration. For me it is Alain Delon, the very first actor to portray the role in Plain Soleil, but maybe that is just because he's closest to the Ripley of the books for me. But the best film adaptation of Ripley is Vim Vender's The American Friend, for its style, atmosphere, and the wonderful performance by Bruno Guntz. Well, nobody's perfect. Now, let's see what streaming recommendations we can come up with. First, it's Carol with Go Home Polish, which is available on E4. This is the winner of a 2020 Irish short film prize. On April the 27th, 2018, Michael Iwanowski left his house in Cardiff to walk to his home village in Poland, carrying British and Polish passports and wearing a T-shirt bearing the word Polska. He began his 1,200-mile journey east, sticking as closely as possible to a straight line he had drawn on a map. Over 105 days, it would take him through Wales, England, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, and the Czech Republic. And what he did on his journey was to post a diary on Instagram recording his thoughts, encounters and impressions. He saw the project as a way of thinking about the idea of home, not least because it would take him from the place he'd lived in for 18 years to the place that he came from. And it was all bound up when Brexit had made the idea of home, identity and belonging a very politicized subject after he had seen graffiti scribbled on a back street demanding go home Polish. As the film progressed, go home Polish becomes irrelevant because he found that most people were wonderfully, deeply personal and they were talking human to human rather than citizen to foreigner. And it's a, it's a really interesting concept. He's very much a, an artist, photographer, and as it's a very short film, you have to imagine a certain 
points of his of his travels but it's certainly a worthwhile journey to go along with him and here's a clip taking some photographs and then we saw this and we both felt uncomfortable but we wouldn't say it it's a big thing to question your whole existence within a community because somebody writes small black letters on on a wall three words you know And even though I'm at home in Wales, some might think that I'm not. Some might want me to go home. But you, you cannot stop being defensive. I don't know if you, maybe you're not as bad as I am, but I get defensive. So there's always this under, underlying fear that so you, you can all, you know, they're gonna deport you at the back of a lorry. <laughs> now I've got a double bill for my first recommendation. That'll be the day, 1973, is the tale of a restless young man in the late 1950s who drops out. The lead is David Essex as Jim McLean, and his mentor is Mike, played by Ringo Starr. In this clip, Mike explains the ways of working at a fun fair. It's not much, admittedly, but it's home and it's free. You're right, it's not much. Christ, what do you expect? Listen, all we're here for is to work and sweat, and work and fiddle. Right, fiddle. That's the game. Everyone knows it. So don't you go and cock it up for the rest of us by being honest. It's a shilling for them and a shilling for you. And wear your pants with the biggest pockets. They know it goes on, but as long as you're not bloody obvious, it's all right, they turn a blind eye. That way, they pay us sod all, and we have to work all the hours God sends. The easiest way is to work it so that you've never got the right change. The cars are always started before you take the money anyway, so that when you get round to give them the change, you have to jump on the back of the car and stuff it into their hands while they're busy looking where they're going. The feel for the period is good, and the music of the times was painstakingly assembled. Keith Moon and Billy Fury appear in it too. It was directed by Claude Wattam, with a screenplay by Ray Connolly. The second part of my double bill is the sequel from 1974, called Stardust. The writer again is Connolly, but the director this time is Michael Apted, who died two days after I re-watched the film in early January. Stardust follows Jim, Essex again, as he tries to make it in the music business of the 60s and early 70s. The character of Mike reappears as his road manager, but apparently Ringo felt it was a little too close to home, so this time Mike is played by Adam Faith. The music is great, with Keith Moon again, and Dave Edmonds as a member of the band as well as the film's musical director. Here is the first recording session for Jim's band, The Stray Cats. OK, that's fine. Let's get right on to the other side. Can we hear that back? Better not. Might put you off. Can we be ready to go as soon as possible, boys? Studio time costs money. I think we can lose you on this one, Johnny. Uh, let's try this as a solo from Jim. Sorry? Let's try this as a solo from Jim. No, we've, re we've rehearsed it like this. John, 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 don't blow it. You don't blow it. We've rehearsed it, man. Come on, let's go. Come on, man, what the hell's going on here? Let's rehearse it. Don't blow it. Come on, man, what the hell's going on here? Call it, you two. Call it, please. Ready? One, two, three, four. You kept me waiting just a little bit too long. Just a little bit too long. Yeah. 
I found both films moving studies of a troubled man pursuing his dreams. One word of warning, it wasn't easy finding Stardust to watch. First, it's not the 2007 film of the same name and not the new David Bowie biopic, which is out soon. I couldn't find it on Apple and it took me a while to find it on YouTube where you can find it and rent it for $1.99. I eventually tracked it down there by searching for David Essex. Patrick. Cinema history is littered with failed adaptations of classic novels, but one that succeeded magnificently was Martin Scorsese's 1993 film of Edith Wharton's masterpiece of life among the 19th century New York elite, The Age of Innocence, which is available to stream inexpensively on a range of platforms. Here, Daniel Day-Lewis as Newland Archer, engaged to be married to Winona Ryder's May, encounters her unhappily married cousin, the Countess Olenska, a childhood friend, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, at the opera. You were horrid. You kissed me once behind a door. But it was your cousin Vandy, the one who never looked at me, I was in love with. <laughs> yes, you have been away a very long time. Oh, centuries and centuries. So long, I'm sure I'm dead and buried in this dear old place's heaven. The production design is breathtaking, the camera work balletic, and the performances from the whole cast are perfectly judged. The 1934 version is also available on Amazon with Irene Dunn as the Countess, but despite her luminous presence, it's very much inferior to the later film. Okay, Carol. The Coen Brothers' excellent Western True Grit, which was filmed in 2010, is a second and rather different version of Charles Portis's novel rather than a remake of the 1969 film that brought John Wayne and Oscar as the one-eyed bounty hunter Marshall Rooster Coburn. Portis's novel is narrated by Matty Ross, a prim Presbyterian Spencer looking back from the 1920s to the great adventure of her life in 1878, just 13 years after the Civil War. She set out at the age of 14 after persuading Rooster to let her tag along in order to bring to justice Tom Cheney, who murdered her father in Fort Smith, Arkansas. But Fort Smith is not a welcoming place. The Irish undertaker who has prepared her father's corpse, the proprietress of the hotel where she stays, and a sly businessman she must deal with all attempt to take advantage of her in each case, she manages amusingly and admirably to drive a hard bargain. The same proves true with her relationship with the boozy Rooster Coburn. Jeff Bridges' Rooster is a wily, duplicitous, self-centered man. Haley Seinfeld is Matty with earnest braids and strong eyebrows, as well as sheer pluck. This true grit is harsher and a more somber film than the Wayne version, the tone chillingly wintry rather than gently autumnal. And in this clip, Matty meets Rooster Cogburn for the first time. Rooster Cogburn? What is it? I'd like to talk to you a minute. What is it? They tell me you're a man with true grit. What do you want, girl? Speak up at supper time. Let me do this. Your makings are too dry. I'm looking for the man who shot and killed my father, Frank Ross, in front of the Monarch boarding house. The man's name is Tom Cheney. They say he's over in Indian Territory, and I need somebody to go after him. What's your name, girl? My name is Maddie Ross. We're located in Yale County. My mother's at home looking after my sister Victoria and my brother little Frank. Best go home to them. 
Maybe we'll need help with the journey. There is a fugitive warrant out for Cheney. Government will pay you $2 for bringing him in, plus 10 cents a mile for each of you. On top of that, I will pay you a $50 reward. You know how some films just stay with you long after you've watched them? I remember seeing a Robert Mitchum film when I was a teenager, I guess. It's a sign of how long ago I watched it that I didn't know it was in colour. The film is Second Chance, which is currently on the BBC iPlayer, with Mitchum as a prize fighter drifting from fight to fight in Mexico, and Linda Darnell as a gangster's mole trying to put her past behind her, with heavy Jack Palance on her trail. Don't worry about the plot though, which is rather overblown. The incidental music is completely over the top, and I loved every overcooked mouthful. Apparently it was originally in 3D too, but I didn't know that. In this clip, they're talking to the conductor of a cable car, which, it will not surprise you when you've heard it, is a key element in the finale. Well, I hope it's safe. Do not feel concerned, senorita. In 23 years I am conductor. There is never a disaster except two times. And this two times is only an accident. Well, that helps. The view is magnifica, believe me. It is worth one a small disaster every 20 years. Well, let's view the Magnifica. It's like sailing off into space, isn't it? On the good ship Amol. On the good, slow ship Amol. Very nice counterpunching. Funny little world out there, isn't it? No yesterdays, no tomorrows. There's always manana. You just bury those yesterdays as deeply as you can. Do they stay buried? If you get enough laughs, they do. That's an ancient formula. I picked it up from an old yogi in some other life. And Patrick's next. After this. That was Edith Piaf singing The Lovers of Paris, played on her scratchy, tinny record player by Bernadette Lafont in Jean Eustache's late French new wave epic from 1973, The Mother and the Whore. Long unseen, but currently available on YouTube with English subtitles. As Piaf sings, in Paris, lovers love each other in their own way. And this film is about three such lovers involved in a particularly brutal ménage à trois. The other two are played by Jean-Pierre Léa of 400 Blows fame and Françoise Lebrun. It's three and a half hours long and not for the faint-hearted, but it's a searing, memorable film. Still to come is a feature in which I'll be diving into one particular musical instrument in the world of films. I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But Ian, this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off. You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? to address something that's dear to my heart. When I was re-watching the Sam Peckinpah Steve McQueen film The Getaway a few months ago, so that I could make it one of our streaming recommendations, I was struck by two things about its music, composed by Quincy Jones. 
The first was how much the closing credits sounded like music while you work, only slower, if you're that old. But also that the harmonica sounded to me like one of my heroes, the great Belgian player Toots Tielemann. I checked and it was, but it led me to thinking about the use of harmonica in film. The harmonica has been around in various forms since the early 19th century. It's an extremely moody and versatile instrument. It can be light, jazzy, melancholic, urban, rural, clean, dirty, etc., etc., The choice of harmonica and the way it's played can set a scene instantly. In very simple terms, there are two types of harmonica that we need to talk about. There are others, of course. The first is the chromatic, which has a button in the end to get some of the notes, and tends to sound a bit sweeter and fuller. The other is the simpler diatonic, which you get in various different keys, and is the classic carry-in-your-pocket model. When played straight, it is folky and fairly light-sounding. But then there are other ways to play it. Blues players discovered that if they played it in the wrong key, sucking more than blowing, often through the wrong sort of mic and the wrong amplifier, the same harmonica got the sound they were looking for. It's probably one of the easiest instruments to get a tune out of, but one of the hardest to play really well. There are a few major names who seem to dominate harmonica playing on the big screen. For many people, Larry Adler is the first name they might think of. He appeared in a number of films in the 30s and 40s, and he composed and played on quite a few soundtracks. The best known is probably Genevieve, a comedy from 1953 about the London to Brighton vintage car run. The music is jaunty and fun, and almost as tweedy as Kenneth Moore's suits. Larry's younger brother Jerry is also an important name, playing on many soundtracks, including this one, Shame. plus High Noon, Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady. His other significant role was making sure actors pretending to play looked as if they actually were. Tommy Morgan played on more than 500 soundtracks and is said to be the most listened to harmonica player, although you may not know his name. His CV runs from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers through Rio Bravo, this one. Purple in the canyon, that's where I long to be with my three good companions. How the West Was Won, The Cincinnati Kid, to 
Cool Hand Luke here. Dances with Wolves to Ratatouille and Toy Story 3. You might notice the number of westerns in that list. It's not easy to ride the range or go into battle with a violin or a tenor sax on your back, but a harmonica is as portable as they come. When a film needs some realistic music that might actually be there, it's an obvious choice. Here's Lewis Milestone's classic World War I film from 1930, All Quiet on the Western Front, the famous butterfly scene. Here is a harmonica in World War II in the story of G.I. Joe. Hey, what do you got in the package, something I don't know. Well, open it. How are you going to find out if you don't open it? An idea. You don't see the player in that scene, but the inference is there. And it's the same with westerns. High Noon, for example, Jerry Adler. seems made for the campfire scene. Here is Tommy Morgan again in Blazing Saddles this time, with the cowboys around the campfire eating their plates of beans. Sorry about that. Sticking with comedy, here are the Marx Brothers in Go West, with Harpo apparently playing the harmonica astride a horse, leading a carriage containing Groucho and Chico, with John Carroll and his love interest Diana Lewis riding behind. Not a western as such, 1967's The Flim Flam Man, also known as One Born Every Minute, has George C. Scott as a con man in the Deep South, and a harmonica clearly points out the geography in Jerry Goldsmith's title music. Mm-hmm. 
that's Tommy Morgan again, of course. The Civil War film, The Red Badge of Courage, directed by John Huston in 1951, sets the scene with a harmonica too. That leads us to one of the most significant users of the harmonica in westerns, Ennio Morricone. That's the good, the bad and the ugly. But in Once Upon a Time in the West, 1968, the Charles Bronson character is simply called Harmonica, and he's introduced like this. The musician is Franco Di Gemini, who was on other Sergio Leone Spaghetti Westerns and has appeared on many films. For Once Upon a Time in the West, he adapted his chromatic harmonica to play the iconic three-note riff. Purists may wonder why Charles Bronson is shown with a diatonic, but the effect is dramatic nonetheless. Finally, on the subject of Westerns, John Hammond Jr. blew up a more up-to-date feel for Little Big Man in 1970. But it's not just muddy trenches and Western trails. Fred Astaire picked up a chromatic and danced with it in 1938's Carefree. I'm not sure who's actually playing. I suppose he might have been. That was since they turned Loch Lomond into swing. A completely different mood for the harmonica, freewheeling urban, can be heard in Henry Mancini's opening music for Breakfast at Tiffany's in 1961. weary city feel with Toots Tielemans for Midnight Cowboy. Similarly, a member of a biker gang in 1953's The Wild One plays in a bar and taunts an aged bartender. It's rebel music. Hey, Pops, give me one of those crazy beers, will you, ma'am? 
That was Danny Welton. The film was an early outing for Marlon Brando, who also plays a chromatic harmonica, after a fashion, in Last Tango in Paris in 1972, as if he didn't have anything better to do. I, I guess it's symbolic. The soundtrack of Last Tango in Paris is by Argentinian sax player Gatto Barbieri, but the soundtrack CD starts like this. to Toots Tielemans, another mood entirely was created for Jean de Florette and Manon des Sources, the magnificent Marcel Pagnol adaptations in the 1980s, conjuring up rural France just after the First World War. We haven't mentioned the blues yet, there are many examples, including the representation of Little Walter and others in Cadillac Records, the story of chess records in Chicago. But steering away from real-life characters, Crossroads, Walter Hill's 1986 blues film has Joe Seneca miming to the wonderful Sonny Terry and his distinctive harmonica sound. One last example to finish with. I haven't seen Francis Ford Coppola's 1966 You're a Big Boy Now, but I know the music, which is by The Loving Spoonful. That band's John Sebastian is a fabulous harmonica player, and his tune, Lonely, Amy's theme, is yet another mood to consider. Well, that's all for this podcast. We'll be back in February, maybe with a programme to preview for Chichester Cinema at New Park. Who knows? If you have any comments or suggestions, you can contact us via walter at chichestercinema.org and please mark it podcast. Thanks for listening. And until next month, it's goodbye from Carol. Bye-bye. From Patrick. Bye. And from me, Sandy. Goodbye.
I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Find us at chichestercinema.org.